Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we do beseech with you and plead with you that you would grant that posture without which no one can understand truth, especially from your Holy Word, namely that we might have reverence and humility before it this morning. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So it's a joy to be uh, together with you all again. I can honestly say I was uh, very much looking forward as I drove down here this morning to seeing uh, many of you face to face again. And so uh, it's a privilege to be here and uh, fond memories from last spring. So it's great to be back in your midst. I remember when I left that Jonathan said, now make sure and come back and just pick up in Jane's where you left off. Um, it's not exactly where I left off, although in the last sermon I preached on James here, uh, I had taken us up in chapter 2, but also uh, fingered forward, so to speak, in chapter 3 um, about the tongue. And um, so anyway, I thought I would pick up here at verse uh, 13 uh, through 18 of chapter 3, and that's our sermon for this morning, uh, The Heart of Wisdom. So let's uh, turn and hear God's word now from James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18. This is God's very word. Give careful attention to it. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness and wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. But it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and severe, sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace uh, by those who make peace. John J. Robbins once opened up an address to a crowd of school people like this. He, he said, let us begin with a horror story based upon a true story. He said, um, it's not a fictional horror story. This really did used to occur. Hundreds of years ago, um, there was the so-called art of molding men in certain countries. And in this quote-unquote art, uh, they would take a child of only two to three years old, and they would place them in a porcelain uh, vase. All of this was done for the delight and entertainment of very perverse noblemen. Only his head or feet would come out of the vase, and the rest of the child would remain in the vase until he was about eight to ten years old. And the vase was often a strange, misshapen uh, kind of vase. And so as the body of the child grew up, either a boy or girl, their body would conform uh, to the gross, misshapen horror of that uh, vase. And at the age of 10 to 12 years after the child's body had developed into a kind of misshapen monster, they would break the vase, and out would come this poor, deformed uh, child, all for the delight and amusement of these perverse uh, leaders. Well, the world is in the business of shaping children and adults as well. However, the world's tools for molding uh, perverse shapes is not always as visible as squishing 
people at young, tender ages uh, into uh, porcelain vases. Uh, the world is not in the business of producing misshapen bodies, uh, but uh, nevertheless, by perverse means, it is often in the business of molding hearts and minds and creating misshapen monsters of the mind. At times, it can twist, it can pervert, it can misinform, it can bend, and put almost unbearable and unrelenting pressure upon the people of God, both the minds of young people and the minds of uh, teenagers and the minds of older people as well. The world seeks to make us assume a misshapen, inhuman shape. Now my fundamental assumption this morning and premise is that as parents and elders and deacons, old and young in the church, we all play a part in molding and shaping the hearts of minds of those around us and each other. So James begins and says, who is wise among you? James has a theme here in his overall passage. James is often characterized, if there's a wisdom book like unto Job's or Ecclesiastes or Proverbs in the Old Testament, James is often characterized as being this in the New. He speaks of two wisdoms here. The wisdom from below on the one hand, and the wisdom from above on the other. It's self-evident in the text. The one from below uh, actually fragments the self and divides and fragments the community in which the self resides. In this case, we're speaking about the church. In contrast to this, there's another wisdom from above that unifies like a glue and actually holds together these um, esteemable virtues that he wants to enjoin the people of God to have, but it's also a glue for the community in which the individual uh, resides. So let us lay out our plan for the meditation this morning and look first at the wisdom uh, from below. We want to look at its origin on the one hand, and then we want to look at its character, and then the results of this wisdom from below. And then we'll turn, just as the text directs us, and look at the wisdom that comes from above in contrast to that and look at its origin, its character, and also uh, the result. So first of all, the wisdom uh, from below. Notice firstly in verse 13 as James starts. Here's a kind of topic sentence for his whole uh, monologue, if you will. Um, it leads into the list of vices and virtues that follow. And the Christian is exhorted to be characteristically meek and humble, especially in situations which may result in conflict. Uh, this can remind us of our Lord's own exhortation at that deep and high point in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now that may not strike you that James starts off by saying, have meekness and have humility. But in the ancient Hellenistic world, these virtues were not exactly cherished. Uh, in the ancient world, especially the Hellenic area that James is speaking into, these virtues were not held up uh, so much. One was to be stoic, one was to be strong, uh, unmoved. Uh, and posture impose themselves that way, uh, not necessarily in the meek 
and mild and humble way that James enjoys uh, his Christian uh, children to behave. So first of all, the wisdom from below. Notice its origin. James sees as a vice any so-called wisdom that comes up from below. Any wisdom that comes up from anywhere other than above is considered uh, not good. This wisdom is not that which descends from above. Rather, it's from below. Now, a qualifier, that doesn't mean that we can't learn from the common grace virtues of those round about us, even outside the church, or the natural laws that manifest itself, even in those who are not uh, believers. But nevertheless, that's not exactly James' point here. Uh, James' point is rather one that you must have wisdom characterized as coming from above, not from below. Because look what he says about its origin. He uses three adjectives to describe it. It's from the earth. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. That is, it's not natural. It's devoid of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, according to James, such wisdom divides. It's demonic in the final analysis. James agrees with what is axiomatic, that it doesn't even need an argument in the New Testament. Namely, that demons are responsible uh, for much of the ill behavior that goes on in human beings round about us, and surely much of the divisiveness. Ha ha, says James. You who hold to this kind of wisdom, you claim to be inspired. Oh yeah, you're right, you're inspired. Uh, But it's not by the Holy Spirit. It's not by God. Uh, There is a real spiritual warfare that goes on. And we in the West have a hard time sometimes recognizing that. Let's let... Let's admit, we're basically materialists. And we think that everything has a cause and effect that's materially grounded. And sometimes that's true. Uh, But just plant a church and uh, realize uh, that spiritual uh, forces and powers are alive and well, especially where the kingdom of God is being advanced. And there is a war uh, going on, a spiritual war, uh, for your souls, for my soul, and for the church. James continues, and now he outlines the characteristics of this wisdom from below. Look at verse 14. He says that this wisdom from below is contentious. It is full of selfish ambition. The kind of zeal that's always trying to win its point uh, with its opponent. The kind of wisdom that's more concerned to win against her opponent or his opponent as opposed to win over the opponent. As G.K. Chesterton so poignantly said, he's so quotable, as you know, most people quarrel because they never learned how to argue. Here's the one who is characterized as having a fierce desire to promote his or her own opinion as opposed to the other. And notice also that James says the problem is not the external circumstances, but it's a problem of the heart. They're not even honest. They claim to have wisdom from above, but the proof is in the pudding, according to James. If you just look honestly at what's happening round about you, then you'll see the truth of what he's saying. So having looked at its origin from below, wisdom from below, having looked at its character, now look at its results. What's the result wrought by the person characterized uh, who's imbibed in wisdom from below? James gets to the heart of the matter. He says, there, in that place, you will observe, it will be marked by unrest, disorder, and every evil work. You will see 
unsettlement in that place, instability. For example, the kinds of disorders which ensue from unnecessary disruptions, jealousies, rivalries, and mistrust. Remember, students will be like their teachers. If a teacher is marked by this kind of wisdom, then the results will be unrest and disorder. The same could be said of parents, church officers, Christian brothers and sisters that we hang with, so to speak. So now looking at the wisdom, having looked at the wisdom from below, now James shifts and look at the wisdom from above. We'll look at its origin, its characteristics, and its results. First, its origin and its characteristics and its finally result is a glue and a bond that holds together uh, virtues that in Greek, uh, all these adjectival phrases are beautifully arranged in couplets and, they, and they're even made to sound similar. And consequently, this wisdom from above has a very positive effect in the community as well. Look at verse 17 as re- with regards to its origin. The wisdom from below had its origin as coming from below and was ultimately uh, negatively influenced by mnemonic powers. But now this wisdom from above, in contrast to that, is spiritual, not unspiritual. Do you want a heavenly wisdom? James says, look for the wisdom from above. That James, like unto his brother, remember he is the brother of Jesus, our Lord, are both preeminently concerned with peacemaking. Now that doesn't mean, of course, if you just read your Bible, you know that Jesus came to breed a sword in certain uh, cases and to divide. Uh, even family members in certain cases, and believers and unbelievers, and surely arrogant, hypocritic leaders uh, from those who were truly sheep that were hungry from his word. But the tilt is often towards peacemaking and towards unity and striving to be at peace with all. And then notice the characteristics. Here he turns to the community. What's the final test of what wisdom exists in an individual or a community? James would say, well, look to the community. Look at its characteristics. What kind of community is engendered by the wisdom that a community has? Does it exude the following characteristics, James would say? And now he lists seven adjectives, or adjectival phrases, which should be showcased in the community that is marked by wisdom from above. And this is like glue that holds them all together. First, he says, this wisdom from above is pure. Here he has in mind moral purity. Uh, Just as the the words of the Lord are pure, so also this wisdom from above is pure. Think of Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. So too, this individual's words are pure if he's seeking and imbibing in the wisdom from above. Proverbs 15, 26. The Lord detests the thoughts of the wicked, but those of the pure are pleasing to him. Thus, it is a moral purity, one that resembles the very character of God himself, one that is marked by unmixed motives, definitely not by divisive or sectarian fragmenting of spirit. Rather, this is a moral purity that is expanded upon by a beautiful Similarly uh, sounding adjectives, uh, six here, which follow, that all paint this robust picture of what true wisdom looks like. 
Notice, secondly, in contrast to contentious division, James says, this wisdom from above, which influences individuals and the community, consequently, is peacemaking. Third, it is gentle, or we might say considerate, or we might say non-combative. And fourthly, it is persuadable. Now, this is the only time this particular word shows up in the New Testament, so we have to go outside the New Testament for a little bit of illumination to really get the nuance of what it's saying. Uh, But what it's saying is, it does not mean one who is swayed by every opinion that comes his way, or her way. After all, then James would be disagreeing with himself, right? What he said in chapter 1, don't be like a, a ship that's tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and every false teaching. No. Uh, This is more a kind of posture about which everybody who goes into a committee meeting or a consistory meeting or talking with brothers and sisters should have. Um, My glasses seem to be really messing with this mic here. Excuse me one minute. Namely, that you know your own mind, but you don't necessarily have your mind made up. In other words, you're willing to listen You're willing to seriously engage the other person across from the table in order to hear what they're having uh, to say. Perhaps even to change your mind even though you know it, but you don't have it made up. In other words, this person gladly listens to another so that you may understand true teaching and that you may understand truth. This wisdom takes pains to listen carefully to another instead of attacking another's position. In a word, trust. Fifthly, now we come to other adjectival phrases that fit together. This wisdom is marked by being full of mercy and full of compassion and bearing good fruits. She or he is marked by awareness of another's needs, realizing that she has been shown mercy or he has been shown mercy and And therefore, that person is willing to be compassionate and even extend mercy to the other. For blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive and be shown mercy. And then sixth and seventh, this wisdom from above is marked uh, by two long adjectives uh, adjectives that follow and are similar. First, this wisdom from above is also impartial. It doesn't show partiality. It doesn't have a divided mind. And moreover, it's sincere. Uh, It is, in other words, untainted by hypocrisy. I guess we say genuine. The person's not a poser. And you can use the intuit and sense uh, when people are real and substantive and being honest and genuine with you. That's what James says. Don't throw dust up in people's face. Don't be a poser. (laughs) Be who you are and be sincere. And that's a mark of wisdom from above. And what will the results be in verse 18? This wisdom from above. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So the goal of this heavenly wisdom is to make peacemakers. And the results of this kind of wisdom, says James, is a harvest of righteousness. What's your goal as a Christian, either as a parent or a teacher or a pastor or a layperson in Christ's church? Isn't a harvest of righteousness what we want to see among ourselves and our family and among one another? Uh, is your goal to provide a context in which such a harvest of righteousness 
uh, can take place and occur. Did you notice James' metaphor? Righteousness, says James, does not occur in a context of strife and disorder, contentiousness and hostility. As a friend of mine and former professor says, you know, God's goal is peace, not conflict. Unity, not division. Righteousness does not grow in an environment of strife and hostility. Farming may not be as exciting as the battlefield, but the patient planting and watering of reconciliation and patience and forgiveness produces the fruit of righteous lives and attitudes that delight our Father. People of God, dream dreams with me for one minute. I've grown in my conviction after studying this passage, if I'm to think James' thoughts after him, which of course are equally God's thoughts, then I need to give attention to the following dreams and goals. Am I seeking to raise peacemakers in my life? Especially at the seminary? Especially in the church? Especially in my own family? Am I taking pains to raise generals, soldiers, Seals and green berets, as necessary as those are, is to protect the truth. Nevertheless, am I first and foremost seeking to make peacemakers who seek reconciliation, and especially in the church? Is your own life marked by the wisdom from above, which engenders all these beautiful virtues, and chiefly the unity and orderliness and peace uh, that comes? Is this church, my church, all our denominations, all our homes, our teaching marked by a loving and gentle and patient pursuit of peace with all kinds of people, maybe even those with whom we strongly differ? Are your conversations, your session meetings, your consistory meetings, your committee meetings, or home interactions marked by such virtues that represent wise people under the influence of the wisdom of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior himself who comes from above? And of course, is Christ's United Reformed Church committed to producing peacemakers among her people. This is not just the responsibility of the leadership. It's the responsibility of us all. And it's engendered uh, or injured every time we hold conversation with one another. Remember, a pupil will be like those who teach her or him. People of God, there's only one way to achieve such a lofty goal, of course. It's to turn to our beloved Lord Jesus Christ, who showcased all these virtues, and who was wise himself beyond all wisdom. So we need to seek to ask him for forgiveness for our sins when we failed in this regard, to clothe us with all righteousness, and to equip us for this high ideal and the monumental task that he sets before us. This is our duty. It's no wonder when we turn to Paul, especially to 1 Corinthians, and we see that this long cataract river of wisdom is ultimately applied to our Lord Christ, Uh, especially in chapter 1, 17 through 3, 2, but a key verse here is chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, and here Paul quotes Jeremiah, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. May it be so. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your encouragement. We thank you, O Lord, that you exhort us to emulate the wisdom from above, to plead for it. We know earlier in this book, uh, you have even told us that those who lack wisdom should ask for it. 
So Lord, we plead with you that indeed you would grant to us in all our Christian endeavors, especially in the church, but in our homes and even in our dealings out in the world, O Lord, that you would grant us peace making and that you would grant us wisdom from above so we might emulate these virtues by the strength of the fruits of your Holy Spirit residing in us. Uh, May it be so, O Lord, and as you do so and accomplish this in our midst, we'll give you great praise and we thank you uh, for unity and for peacemaking and for love and the bond of truth, uh, Lord, that you knit in our hearts uh, for one another and even in this place. Multiply it, O Lord, we do pray. And we will give you the glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.